Turn in your Bibles, please, to James chapter 3. James chapter 3 this morning. If you don't have a a Bible that, if you don't own a Bible uh, or or you forgot to bring one, there there are Bibles uh, underneath the seats in front of you, and so I would invite you to use one of those Bibles, or uh, if you don't have a Bible at all, please consider that our gift to you. Take that home, treasure it, read it often, and be blessed by the Word of God. James chapter 3, we'll begin reading in verse 13, James three thirteen. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure. Then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. What what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. Therefore it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. And do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge. He who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? This is God's word. Would you pray with me? Father, this morning we rest in the reality that you are pleased with Indian Creek Baptist Church. We know We don't deserve that. We know we haven't earned that. We know you see us through the person of your son, Jesus Christ, 
And we thank you that you have united us with him by faith. Lord, thank you so much for sending Jesus into the world to take our sin and take our punishment and to give us his righteousness and take us into your family. And, and, and we can enjoy the adoption of sons and be called your children today. Uh, what a privilege it is. And Father, so, it's so in evidence as we, uh, as we interact with one another on a day-to-day basis that you are changing your people into the image of your son. Thank you so much for that. Lord, we do struggle, but we, we just want to thank you for our church family today. Lord, this morning we want to remember our brothers and sisters in Christ who gather in other congregations, particularly uh, the Minner Wells Church of God and Pastor Gerald Tomlin and his family. Uh, Father, they have been going through a lot of difficulty the last several months. And uh, we pray for Pastor Tomlin, uh, for his wife, Melinda. I pray that you would heal her body and that you would bring healing to that whole congregation. And most of all, Father, I pray that you would renew their joy and their confidence in Christ and cause them to be fruitful in your service for their good and for your glory. Lord, we want to thank you for those ministering in our own church. Thank you for those in the nursery and the children's church who uh, have sacrificed their own comforts and their own uh, uh, opportunity to worship uh, with the gathering here in this room in order to serve our families and, and children. And so, Father, I pray that you would make them uh, effective and uh, fruitful in their work as they pray over these children, as they care for them, as they teach them, as they show them the love of Christ. Lord, I pray that you would renew their joy in you. Lord, this morning as we examine your word and uh, really barely scratch the surface of the rich treasure that we find therein, I, I pray that we would be able to have an encounter with you, not just to hear some doctrine not just to be rebuked or encouraged along a certain line of behavior, but to truly meet you. Lord, that's the whole reason why we exist, and we want to have fellowship with you today. And so, Father, I pray that that's what would take place. Lord, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In the years leading up to our time in Mineral Wells, Texas, here at Indian Creek, uh, Mandy and I have had the privilege to serve a number of different congregations in various capacities. When we were living in Louisville, Kentucky, before moving here, uh, we belonged to a wonderful church home. Uh, but about every other week, uh, I, I found myself filling the pulpit in uh, another area church. Uh, we visited one such church in southern Indiana in the middle of a summer, a church with a beautiful building, only slightly smaller than this building. Uh, the church happened to be looking for a pastor. They had an interim pastor, and he was gone that day. And so I was excited about the opportunity to preach, and I was curious about where things might lead in the future because I knew that uh, I, I was pursuing uh, pastoral ministry. I felt called by the Lord to do that, and so I was curious about where things might go from there. The plan was to preach in the morning service and then drive over to a park in order to enjoy a picnic together as a church family. Now, listen, I'm about to say a few things, but let me clarify something first. The church 
is the body of Christ. And she's been bought by his blood. She's the temple of the Holy Spirit. One day she will gather around the throne in the new creation and fulfill all of God's ambitions for humanity as a whole as his representatives in a recreated earth. So it is impossible to overstate the wonderful glory of the church both in its present local manifestations and in its future fulfilled glory. But I think we're all aware that churches struggle from time to time. They have challenges, and and when we arrived at this particular church that Sunday morning, it became clear to us that this church was going to be no exception to that rule. We showed up, and aside from us, there there was literally exactly one person in the congregation that had decided to be polite that day. The interim pastor had asked somebody to, to kind of show us around. He was really nice. Everybody else, quite frankly, wasn't. Uh, Even though we had arrived early, the building was filling up with people, but instead of talking with us or even with each other, they just sat stoically waiting for the service to begin. We made our way to the front row of seats as the service began, started a familiar song with pleasant lyrics and a lilting melody, jarringly juxtaposed with an angry drum solo that seemed like it was meant to conjure up King Kong or the Kraken or something like that. I, I couldn't help but look behind me at all the people uh, in, in the chairs behind us and, and, and I saw a handful of people half-heartedly singing along and the rest of the church just sat there. A few minutes later, we learned that this had been the contemporary portion of an awkwardly blended worship set. After a few songs and some announcements, a totally different group of musicians ascended to the platform and we were led in a uh, couple of gospel songs in the tradition of Fanny Crosby. Again, I look behind me to find a totally different but equally meager portion of the congregation participating in the service while everyone else grimaced with long-suffering. I got up and preached. I looked around the room and just was met with these crossed arms. Some of you I didn't see any crossed arms until Russell just crossed his arms. Frowns. Felt like I was teaching one of those mandatory safety classes at work, you know, that you've already sat through a hundred times. After we all drove to the park and we waited while a few dozen meat-flavored hockey pucks were thrown onto the grill, we tried to make small talk. It didn't work. We left before the hockey pucks thawed. And we breathed a sigh of relief as we crossed the Ohio River and headed home. Later, when I reconnected with the interim pastor and and tried to find out a little bit more about the church and still hopeful uh, that maybe the problem was me and there might be an opportunity for future ministry there, he began to explain to, to me some of the conflicts that were simmering beneath the surface of what was going on at the church. Conflict over music. Conflict over who was really in charge of the food pantry next door. Conflict over finances, conflict over the upkeep of buildings, conflict over stuff that shouldn't have been a big deal, but was absolutely killing the church. And I wish I could say that this is the only church that I've ever visited that was suffering from that type of difficulty, but that's not the case, and you probably have experienced the same as well if you've been a Christian for any length of time. The truth is, sometimes church people quarrel. Did you know that? Sometimes church people 
fight. They quarrel with each other. They quarrel in their homes and in their marriages. They quarrel with their neighbors. They quarrel over government. They quarrel over work. They bicker and they pick and they snipe and they get their feelings hurt and they leave to go to another church only to find that they're quarreling there. Why is that? I used to belong to a church where the conflict was constant, and times it just felt like there was this inexplicable cloud over the congregation, like I couldn't explain why we had conflict. There was something that we couldn't control, like invisible spores floating around the building and infecting all of us or something. But the truth is, James shows us that the reason why church people quarrel is anything but enigmatic. It's not a mystery. There is actually a very simple reason why this happens, and it all boils down to the difference between true wisdom and false wisdom, between the wisdom from above and wisdom that comes from below. Today's passage is actually the theological center of the book of James. Here he is bringing us to a point of clarity, a moment of decision, whether we are going to embrace the wisdom of the world or whether we are going to embrace real wisdom, the wisdom that comes from above. This section of James breaks down into four movements, each of which tells us something about the difference between wisdom from above and wisdom from below, sheds light on why church people quarrel in the first place, and guides us onto a path of health and growth. So notice with me in the first place from James 3, verses 13 through 18, that the difference between wisdom from above and wisdom from below is a matter of personal character. It's a matter of personal character. You see, we might be tempted to think that the difference between a wise person and a fool, the difference between genuine wisdom and false wisdom is a matter of the intellect or of one's abilities, or of one's competence. But James makes it clear that it's not either of those things. The line between wisdom from above and wisdom from below is a matter of morality. It's a matter of character. Congregations get confused about this all the time. I mean, uh, we say something like, hey, we need somebody to handle our finances. Like, we're desperate for this. Somebody's got to do it, and I'm so tired. I'm doing all these other ministries. Hey, Frank is really good with money. I don't know of any Franks here. It's a theoretical person that I'm making up. (laughs) Hey, Frank's really good with money. He seems to have a lot of it. He has a nice car and a nice house. Nice clothes. Let's put him in charge of our finance team. And because they're good Christians and they want to see the best in everybody, they overlook the reality that Frank is a person who's competent, but he doesn't have character. They thought that wisdom was a matter of competence when in reality it's a matter of morality and the, 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 the difficulties that arise from that are myriad. See, the difference between wisdom from above, real wisdom, and wisdom from below, counterfeit wisdom, is a moral difference. And we can see this difference from three different angles. In the first place, notice with me that the difference between these two types of wisdom uh, appears in terms of their source, in terms of their source. And notice how James describes the wisdom from below in verse 15. He says it is earthly, it's unspiritual, it's demonic. Later on, he is going to warn believers about friendship with the world. 
In other words, there are actually three great enemies of the good that give rise to to counterfeit wisdom. Uh, Paul would call this the flesh, the world, and the devil. Three great enemies of God. You see, Scripture teaches that God and his people are opposed by a great invisible army of enemies led by Satan permeating the earth. These are real, sinister, powerful, spiritual beings who exist outside of the physical realm and they wage war strategically against the image of God. Their objective is to slander his glory by destroying his image and they're equipped with an arsenal of lies. And while they will ultimately and finally be defeated, they have one distinct advantage in the world and that is this. Every human being that's born into the world, though created in God's image, is infected with the corruption of sin. And so these wicked, evil powers have the the, the reality that human beings have been corrupted by sin on their side. Now that's not to say that any of us are worthless trash or that we're as bad as we can possibly be. It's not to say that every person is as wicked as the next person. But the Bible is clear that the corruption of sin, due to the decisions of Adam and Eve, have seeped into every part of who we are. So whether it's our desires or our feelings or our words or our actions, every single part of who we are has in one way or another been infected by sin. Not only that, but wicked human beings along with the spiritual powers collaborate with one another to create these systems and structures and strongholds that oppose God. James calls all of these collaborative efforts, these strongholds, the world. And so these three great enemies, the the devil, our flesh, our sinful nature, and the world, oppose Christ. And they create a sort of atmosphere that every one of us sort of swims around in. Like this is the air we breathe, so to speak, so that the wisdom that grows out of the, the soil that's cultivated by these three great evils actually makes a lot of sense to us from the perspective of evil thinking. On the contrary, there's a a wisdom that comes from above. You might recall what James said in chapter 1. What did he say? Every good gift and every perfect gift comes from above, from the Father of lights. In other words, there's this wisdom that grows in the soil of the world that feeds on the flesh and it's cultivated by the spiritual powers, but real wisdom is a gift from the Father. It doesn't make sense to the world because it comes from outside the world. So there's this difference between the wisdom from above and the wisdom that comes from below in terms of their source. Secondly, there's a difference between these two types of wisdom in terms of their operations in the heart. Uh, On the one hand, you've got a wisdom that's fueled by jealousy and selfish ambition and another wisdom that operates out of the fruit of the Spirit, peaceable and pure and and easy to reason with, gentle, etc., So you come face to face with the reality that you've been forgiven, that Jesus offers a free gift, a place in the family of God. You experience the illuminating power of the Holy Spirit to live in a way that pleases Christ. You find freedom from sin and contentment as a result of the cross. And as a result of those realities, sort of seasoning your thoughts and your desires and your heart's movements, you actually begin to operate out of a gratitude that can't be faked and flows into the way you actually think and interact with people. And it leads to a heart of compassion and love and self-sacrifice and humility. Changes the way you operate at the heart level. 
On the other hand, as you know, there are people in the community who for one reason or another just don't seem to get it. They don't operate out of this way of thinking. Maybe they did get it and they're just slipping away through neglect of their spiritual health. They begin to operate on the basis of suspicion and self-reliance. They strategize about how to advance beyond everybody else and they're consumed with selfish ambition and jealousy in their hearts. Others are just so cynical, they literally view the brothers and sisters in Christ as a means to an end. Like, I'm going to come to church because, hey, that, that will help me in my business. That will help me make some friends. Or uh, they're here for the bennies, you know, the, the children's ministry or the, the uh, I don't know, they get to hang out with Don Malden or something like that. But there's a difference between wisdom from below and wisdom from above in terms of how they operate in the heart. And then in the third place, there's a difference between these two types of wisdom in terms of their manifestations in the community. Uh, Notice what James says uh, in the end of chapter 3. A harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Those who operate out of real wisdom create an atmosphere of peace. And what happens with the wisdom of the world? Disorder in every vile practice. The difference between the wisdom from above and the wisdom from below, it's a moral difference. It's not a matter of competence. It's a matter of character. And and that flows from its source through the operations of the heart, and it manifests itself quite clearly in the life of the church. Now listen. Listen. Nothing I've said, I'm sure nothing I've said is surprising to you if you've been uh, going to church for any length of time. And it makes a lot of sense in theory when we're sitting here listening to a sermon. Of course it's the case that gentleness and compassion is better than selfish ambition. But in real life, you've got to appreciate the reality that the wisdom that comes from below is so sneaky and so seductive, it will draw you away. It will, it, it will infiltrate the church. It will always infiltrate your home. It's like one of those, uh, uh, that creeping khaki weed in your lawn, right? That just sort of winds its way and sends its tendrils beneath the surface of the soil of your heart, especially during dry times when healthy fruit isn't growing there. So let me just give you two examples of how this kind of thing happens in the church. Uh, As you probably know, there is a lot of work, a lot of effort, a lot of time that gets invested in the operations of a church. In order for things to go smoothly, people spend a lot of time, they make a lot of sacrifices to make a church uh, happen. And there are going to be times when, quite quite frankly, we get a little bit desperate, right? You see a need, and you know that you need a competent person to fill that need, and in the moment, you're feeling the pain. You know, we need somebody to go teach the teenagers in Sunday school, or we need somebody to oversee the building and grounds budget, or we, we, we need somebody to do this, or we need somebody to do that. And so the temptation is to get a little bit desperate, and because there's a great need, and because part of living in a loving community involves giving people the benefit of the doubt, we don't want to see some of the warning signs, it's very easy to identify a competent person and place them in a position of influence and then when it's too late, the reality that they're operating out of that worldly wisdom sort of comes out and it begins to infect the entire church. It sneaks in. I'll give you another example. Life in the church requires perseverance. It requires faithfulness. And you know that many people don't last very long. 
as believers. They, they begin, it seems like they're Christians, and then they show later on they don't want it anymore. And so if you're the type of person who, by the power of the Spirit of God, has persevered, and you've stuck with it, and you've endured, before long you look around and you've got more experience following Christ than most of the people that you know, and it's so easy to get to the place where you decide you don't have very much to learn, where you decide that you've arrived. That nobody has anything they can teach you. And your heart sort of gets this hard crust over it. And instead of, instead of having the kind of teachable spirit that James describes here, you begin to get proud. And you're not willing to learn anymore. Do you see how sneaky the wisdom of the world can get in, even in the heart of a mature person? You say, that's a, that's a wise person. He's mature. He's, a, he's been a Christian for 25 years. He's a deacon. He's a fill in the blank. Let me ask you something. Is he teachable? Is he humble? What James says is that real wisdom is pure, it's peaceable, it's gentle, it's open to reason. Proverbs 1.5, let the wise hear and increase in learning. Proverbs 19.27, cease to hear instruction and you will stray. James 1.19, let every person be quick to what? Hear. I've just learned in my short time in pastoral ministry that if someone is considered wise and he doesn't have the quality of being teachable and humble, then he doesn't need to have any kind of leadership position in the church because he's just going to cause all kinds of havoc. Or she. Giving them that position of authority, it's only going to make it worse. It's a tragedy repeated too often. Someone who starts out with humility can actually let the victories afforded by the Spirit of God in their life become the reason why they become proud. May it never be at Indian Creek Baptist Church. Friends, learn to identify the difference between the wisdom from above and the wisdom from below. It is not a matter of competence. It is a matter of character in your relationship with the Lord. Secondly, notice with me from chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. That the difference between wisdom from above and wisdom from below is the reason why sinful conflict arises in the church. It's the reason why sinful conflict arises in the church. So at the end of chapter 3, James sets this stage to answer our original question, which he does in the opening verses of chapter 4. He says, why do church people quarrel? Why, where, do the fighting, where does the fighting come from in the church? It's possible that the people to whom James was originally writing had spiraled into bickering and infighting and quarreling. It might have felt like some kind of impersonal force had descended on the church like a thick cloud. Everyone was pointing fingers at each other. It must have seemed like a tangled knot that was impossible to unravel. And, and James says, actually, it's really simple why people quarrel. You want to know why there are fights and quarrels in your midst? You want to know why the church people are at war? It's because you're at war within yourself. Your passions, your own heart, you're operating on the basis, the basis of your flesh, your sinful nature. And it's, it's because the church is shot through with a kind of jealousy and selfish ambition that characterize wisdom from below that there are all these conflicts. That's why church people quarrel. It's not because some of them are baby boomers and some of them are millennials. You know, that's what the church growth experts <laughs> seem to be saying sometimes to, to us pastors. It's not because some of them like country western music and some of them like hymns and some of them like Hillsong. 
That's not why there's conflict in the church. It's not because some of them are black and some of them are white. It's not because some of them are rich and some of them are poor. Don't for one second buy that lie. That's not why there's conflict in the church. The reason why there's conflict in the church is very simple. It's because they aren't living like Christ. Why aren't you reaping peace? It's because you're not sowing peace, right? Let's not be surprised by the reality that when Christians act like the devil, that the church starts to resemble hell. The difference between wisdom from above and wisdom from below, it's the reason why there's sinful conflict in the church. It explains it all. You desire and do not have, James says, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You don't have because you don't ask, because when you do ask, you're asking out of sinful motives because you're controlled by your desires and your passions. Here's the point. James is saying, as he does in this passage, when you operate that way, you are living exactly like the world. You're a friend of the world. And when you position yourself as a friend of the world, we make our, we, when we do that, we're making ourselves enemies of God and we provoke the holy burning jealousy of God on behalf of his people who sent his only son to redeem us and rescue us from the very thing that we're tempted to go back to. And what we need to know is that whether we think we're clever or not, the way, this way of thinking is the furthest thing from real wisdom in the church. See, the difference between these two types of wisdom is why conflict arises in the, in the community. You say exactly, that, somebody needs to tell that to my husband. Somebody needs to tell that to, to the uh, deacons, or, or somebody needs to tell that to another person. Okay, we know better than that, right? James is using the second person here. He says, you. So let's read it that way. If there's conflict in my marriage or in my community group, or, or with the guy on the other side of the sanctuary, the first thing I need to do is recognize that James, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says, you. So let me look at me before I start looking at everybody else. You look at you before you start to look at everybody else. You remember what Jesus said, take the log out of your own eye before you start inspecting other people's eyes for specks. You know, I don't want to brag on our church so much that we fail to, to, to feel the weight of this passage, but as I was studying for this sermon, I started to think about all the questions and the feedback that you've uh, brought to me uh, with relation to our building project. Most of you know that we're planning to, in the planning stages of building a building to the south of this building, and as I reflected on those questions and the concerns that people have brought up, I realized in, in the first place that a lot of people have asked me for clarity on these things, which shows that's encouraging in and of itself because it shows me that you're taking ownership of the future of our church. So that in and of itself has been encouraging. But on a deeper level, what's even been more encouraging to me is the kinds of concerns that people have mentioned. Like nobody, not a single person, has come up to me with a chip on their shoulder or, or a selfish ask. Not a single person. All the, all the concerns that have been brought to me have been like, are you making sure that our budget continues to reflect our, the priority of missions and reaching the nations with the gospel? That's a good concern. Or, uh, hey, you've still got church planning and church revitalization on your mind. Like, we're not just making a club for us, right? That's a great concern. 
Or how, how are we going to use this building to serve our neighbors? That's a great concern. All these concerns and questions have been about ministry and the impact of, of the building on our, the fulfillment of our mission. That's been encouraging to me because you know what that tells me? It tells me that you get what this passage is about. You get the importance of the difference between wisdom from above and wisdom from below. See, friends, you don't need a church that caters to all of your preferences. That's not good for you. It's not good for any of us. You don't need church leaders who try to like figure out which way the wind is blowing and then give you what we think you want. That approach to life in the church has left a trail of bodies in its wake. It doesn't lead to peace. It leads to war. See, there's a very important difference between the wisdom that comes from above and the wisdom that comes from below. And that's why churches have conflict. And so what we want to do is make sure we're going back to the root issues and embrace the wisdom that comes from above and allow that to permeate our church so that we can please the Lord in the way that we relate to one another. Then James goes on in the rest of chapter 4 to talk about how, she, how we should respond to these realities in the next several verses. So we know, first of all, that the, the difference between these two types of wisdom, it's a moral difference, it's a matter of character. We, we know, excuse me, in the second place, that it explains why conflict arises in the church but then notice with me in the third place, from chapter 4, verses 6 through 10, that the difference between wisdom from above and wisdom from below ought to impact the way that we relate to God. It must impact the way that we relate to God. Look at verse 6. He says, he gives more grace. I believe this echoes what Paul told the Roman church. Uh, do you remember what Paul told the Romans? He said, where sin abounded, grace abounded all the more. That is, our passions rage. We befriend the world. We do all these things that, that, take, uh, that put us in a place of enemies of God. We provoke his, his zeal and his jealousy for his people. But for all that, his grace is greater. His grace abounds and overflows beyond the bounds of our failings. He gives more grace. And for this reason, our response is clear. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, that at the proper time he might exalt you. Humble yourself before the Lord, and he will lift you up. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. You see, those who embrace the wisdom of the world, the wisdom that comes from below, the wisdom that's fanned into flame by the flesh, they aren't really wise. They're fools. And one of the reasons why is because ultimately they make themselves the enemies of God. And therefore, all the greatest accomplishments, all of their greatest accomplishments will ultimately burn up because they have made themselves the enemy of God. No, it is those who humble themselves who are really wise. Those who are meek before the Lord. Those who do not think more highly of themselves than they ought to think. The difference between the wisdom that comes from above and that which comes from below it ought to impact the way that we relate to God. In everyday life, we often tend to make our problems far more complicated than they really are. But what James is making clear here is that our real problem is probably very simple. It's pride. You want to know why church people quarrel? Pride. 
I know most of you don't follow stuff like this. It sounds silly even to say. But just like there are superstar baseball players or football players, there are superstar church leaders. Uh, people who have published a lot of books, people whose congregations number in the tens of thousands, people who meet the, the governor or the president, these important pastors. And, and for a lot of these men, don't get me wrong, there are good reasons why they're well-known. Uh, they didn't ask for it. They didn't vie for it. God's just given them a platform, and they're stewarding that platform well. But for way too many celebrity preachers, way too many, even those who preach a biblical gospel and seem on the surface to be really faithful, their ministry is imploding. It's happening all over the place. Too many preachers who have had to resign, not because they were having an affair, not because they were addicted to alcohol and they had to give it up, but because they were just domineering narcissists. Translation, they were proud. And it's happening all over the place. While it's true that the bigger they come, the harder they fall, it doesn't exempt any one of us from the danger of the wisdom from below, from the danger of jealousy and selfish ambition, from the danger of pride. So given this stark difference, we must humble ourselves before the Lord. What does that look like? It's not what you might think. James isn't saying that we need to become a bunch of spiritual Eeyores, you know, down on yourself. Woe is me. I'm a loser. In fact, humility before the Lord means we step up to do battle against sin and Satan. Did you read what he said? Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Humility is not the belief that I am worthless. It is the settled conviction that he is worthy. A conviction that consumes and captivates our vision and our imagination. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Uh, in other words, in light of the difference between wisdom from above and wisdom from below, our response in the very first place should be to draw so close to God, to the God who reveals himself in the Bible, that we are transformed into his image by the Spirit of God. So listen, if you're not a Christian, listen up. There is a being who is so infinitely powerful that no one and nothing can stop him from doing what he wants to do, a being who has the right to rule over all that exists, from the moons of Jupiter to the dust motes that are floating around the Marianas Trench, a being who is so unfathomably, unfathomably good that he invented everything that we rightly enjoy, from the aroma of our morning coffee to the moments of intimacy within a marriage to the swell of pride in the achievements of our kids to the sense of safety in our mother's embrace and a billion other things, a being who adds to all these things the most wonderful reality that in order to have fellowship with someone, in order that his overflowing love might be shared, he created human beings to share fellowship with him. And he went even further than that in this respect. When we sinned, he went after us. He sent his one and only son to take the dead and the punishment and the hate and the curse in his own body on the cross. And then he rose again so that we might have new life in him. This is a wonderful, all-encompassing, life-changing, heart-transforming reality. When you know him, when you, when you have a relationship with him, when the Spirit awakens your heart and you're born again, then you've got everything you need to humble yourself in a sort of painful joy. 
You know what I'm talking about? Pain that I know I've offended him. I've rebelled against him. Joy in knowing I'm forgiven. I'm rescued. I'm saved. Friends, we don't have to go far to find a means and a motivation toward humility. I mean, it's clear on every page of this book. If you come away from reading this book and you feel like more sinful pride, I don't know what's wrong with you. Because this book, I mean, everything leads us to the glory of God and our need to just bow before him and worship. And it's through a recognition of who he is and what he has done and a hard attitude of trust in him that we can embrace a wisdom that makes no sense to the world, the wisdom that comes from above. It's not me being down on myself. It's not me saying, woe is me. I wish I was like somebody else. It's me saying, wow, God is amazing. God is good. God is great. And he loves me. I want to live like that's true. See, the difference between the wisdom from above and the wisdom from below, it's a matter of character. It it explains why conflict arises in the church. It ought to impact our relationship with God, but in the fourth place, it ought to impact our relationship with other human beings. We find this in chapter 4, verses 11 and 12. James says, do not speak evil against one another. There's only one lawgiver and judge, and you ain't it. Here's what James means. The word of God is clear. Not that there is no judgment, but that Jesus is the only judge. So when we take a posture of condemnation toward our neighbor, when we say, you know what, that person is worthless, We're implying that Jesus' judgments are not sufficient, and in this way we're setting ourselves up in opposition to the very law of God. So what that means is that if we're going to embrace the wisdom from above, then we need to humble ourselves not only before God, but also before men and women. When we walk into the church, or when we wave at our neighbors on the street, or when we collaborate with coworkers, we are dealing with people who do not belong to us. They belong to another master. I'm not in charge of them. I will not be consulted on the day of judgment when a decision is made as to someone else's eternal state. Therefore, I must humble myself not only before God, but also before men. And folks, when I, the more I think about this passage, the more I've thought about it this week and in the weeks leading up to it, the more I've come to realize that it really is the explanation for why churches have quarrels and fights. It really, at some level, I guarantee that if you find yourself in a church conflict, that at some level, this passage provides an explanation. And so to to sort of tie all this together, let's just take a moment to uh, zoom out a little bit and look at the passage as a whole. And I think we can apply this at, at three different levels. Level number one, this passage as quickly as we've moved through it, I think is clear that it is first and foremost a diagnostic tool for leaders, elders, deacons, CG leaders, aspiring pastors, people who want to do more in ministry. I know we have several dozen people who fall into this category here today. We all want to be wise. We all want to lead skillfully, but let me ask you a question. Are you humble toward God and toward men? Are you teachable? Do you listen? 
Or do you always feel the need to defend yourself, to manage the message? When somebody pushes back, do you hear them out? Or are you formulating your response before they even finish a sentence? We've all been guilty of that one, haven't we? Some of you have an answer for everything ready-made. You've developed your sense of discernment to such a level of sensitivity that nobody can tell you anything. Here's a rule of thumb, leaders. If nobody ever challenges you ever, you may have, you, you may have already developed a reputation for having a thick skull and punishing people who oppose you, you might need to do some remedial work as a leader. So level one, I think this applies directly to those of us who find ourselves in leadership. You remember how James started this in the beginning of chapter three? Not many of you should become teachers because teachers ought to be wise and wise people are humble. Wise people are teachable. Level number two, in the local church, Leaders have a measure of accountability to all of the members of the church. We all know this. If you don't trust your leaders, eventually you're going to leave. You're going to go somewhere else. But what this passage provides, I think, to every Christian is a very important paradigm for evaluating leaders. Have you thought about it this way? Remember, this is how James started uh, in chapter 3. You're going to be tempted to evaluate your leaders in worldly ways. You know, what kind of results do they get? Do I like the way that he talks? Is it entertaining? Is this guy someone who I like? Is he fun to be around? All these different things that really ultimately don't matter that much become more important than they ought to be. And what you need to know is that it is possible for a leader even to get short-term good results using the very tactics that disqualify him from leadership. And a competent leader, he can use the force of, of personal magnetism to make things happen. I, I do this all the time. No, I'm just joking. And it's your responsibility, in all seriousness, to evaluate your leaders on the basis of what Scripture says and not just on the basis of your whims. James gives us a very simple tool. Are they teachable? Do they listen? Are they open to reason? Do they have an accountability structure or are they just insulating themselves behind a wall of yes men? This is one of the reasons why our leadership structure at Indian Creek is so important. I know it's probably a little mysterious what goes on in our elders meetings. Like, what do they talk about? Why do they take so long to make decisions? But these men hold one another accountable. That's why it's so important to have more than one. What you need to know is that a leader whose doctrine is pristine, who is personally disciplined, who gets things done, but is nonetheless unable to be challenged and hear a word of criticism, is a leader who can destroy the fabric of the unity of the church. It's not wise. It's not someone you need to follow. Level number three. Of course, we must apply this to ourselves on an individual basis. And what we can say from this passage is that if you're the type of person who can humble himself before God but not before your neighbor, then you may need to take another pass, another look at the wisdom that comes down from above. If you're the type of person who can read the Bible for himself but will not listen to another person teaching it, then you are not wise. Because the wisdom that is from above is pure, it's gentle, it's open to reason, it's humble, teachable wisdom. It puts us in our proper place before a dazzlingly glorious God and before our neighbors, all of whom have been created in his image and many of whom are indwelt by the Spirit. 
And what God promises is that for those who possess this type of humility, he will lift you up. He will exalt you at the proper time. It might not be today. It might not be tomorrow. But when it happens, you will rejoice and glorify his name. So please reject the wisdom from below and embrace the wisdom from above. Would you pray with me? Father, each of us, uh, we, we owe you we owe you our, our humility right now because we don't naturally have this type of wisdom. And Father, we confess the selfish ambition, the jealousy, the disorder and vile practice that lurks to one degree or another in the secret places of each of our hearts. We ask that you would forgive us. We ask that you would give us the gift of real wisdom. Wisdom that leads us to bow before you and to gratefully accept the way that you send people into our lives to draw us closer to you. Lord, I pray that you would continue to protect Indian Creek Baptist Church and that we would be a church that that doesn't just get satisfied with we're a little bit better than some other church I used to go to. I pray that you would give us eyes and, and hearts for purity and holiness and, and to go further in our love for you. I pray that we would be a church that doesn't tolerate jealousy and selfish ambition. I pray that you would make us a church that is characterized by humility, by preferring one another, by a servant's heart. Lord, if there is any way specifically where we have fallen short, I pray that you would give us each the grace to seek reconciliation with you and with our neighbor. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.